Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you today. We had a wonderful week down in the Eastern Shore in Cambridge with our family, extended family, and uh, got back just in time to do Brighton's laundry and send him down to Nashville. And uh, it's, it's a little sad not having our oldest with us this week, but we know the Lord has great things in store uh, for our team and our uh, ministry leaders as they go down and minister in Nashville. Our monthly memory verse for July is on the screen. Uh, let's say it together today. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 16, 8. Very good. Well, I'm very excited to have Adam Nagel here today uh, with us to bring the word this morning and that part of our ministry. Uh, Adam, come on up. Adam is the director of the Factory Ministries. And over the past year and a half or so, I've had the opportunity to get to know Adam a little better through pastor's fellowships that we've been involved in uh, and various other ways. In fact, Adam's son uh, is a track athlete and a football player, and so we've spent some time in the bleachers uh, watching our uh, high school students compete in track events and have gotten to know each other a little bit better in that regard as well. Adam has an incredible uh, heart for both the community and the local church, and that's exemplified in the leadership that he brings to the Factory Ministries, one of our local partners uh, right here in Paradise. And so I'd like to pray for Adam, and then I look forward to hearing him bring the word this morning. So come on over, Adam. We'll pray. Father, thank you so much for Adam. Thank you so much for the leadership, Lord, that um, you have given him at the factory. Thank you for the ministry experience and uh, his family, Lord, and uh, just uh, the many ways that he has uh, involved himself in the community and has displayed your heart, your kindness, your love uh, to those that you've placed in his pathways. We look forward to uh, hearing what you've laid on his heart today as he brings his word uh, to us. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bless this time that we have uh, in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Amen. Adam. Thank you, Chris. Well, good morning. I'm excited to be here. Uh, as Chris said, I am the executive director at the Factory Ministries, one of um, local partners here. Love coming out to churches because we say it all the time at the factory is uh, we're not here. We, we're, we exist at the factory to support the local church, to support the local church in its mission uh, in caring for the community and caring for people. So my name's Adam, and I'll give a quick introduction to myself. I uh, am married have, to my wife, Tanya, have four kids. Uh, Chris mentioned one of them. My second son is a senior this coming year and does run track and football, plays football. So Chris and I have been able to cross paths that way. Uh, then we have so two boys, uh, one that's out of high school, then Zach, who's in high school yet, and then Eden, a daughter, and then Ava, our youngest, who is officially transitioned out of elementary school as of last year. So we are kind of in that stage where we're moving towards um, that latter half of um, kind of getting ready to see them all kind of move out of school here shortly. Uh, Grew up in this area, grew up in Lancaster County, didn't always live in this area, uh, have a lot of background in both for-profit and church. I was a senior pastor for close to 10 years, um, all total served in pastoral ministry for close to 16 years. So came to the factory three years ago. I'm in my fourth year there. Absolutely love serving at the factory. It is an, it is an incredible joy. One of my favorite things is to see the community rally around a care for the community. It is just such a, the, the collective collaborative work that, that is done in this community, community is just, 
humbling. It's so fun to be a part of. The factory exists. The way people always say, well, what is the factory? And I was here a few months ago to kind of give you an overview of that. So I'm not going to go spend a lot. My heart this morning is to really encourage us in the gospel. Uh, but the factory, uh, we're an agency. The way I like to say it in a, in a real kind of aggressive way is we're, we exist to punch generational poverty in the mouth is really kind of how we like to say it. Uh, generational poverty is an ugly, hard thing. Jesus says it will always be with us. We understand and know that. But, it, man, we want to we push it back. And so we work hard at that. We're an anti-poverty agency. Uh, we uh, seek really to empower individuals, connect them to resources, and then build communities, what we're all about. We're a faith-based nonprofit, uh, and I'd love for you to come out if you've never been out. Uh, stop on in sometime. Love to give you a tour. Love to show you around and just kind of introduce you to the work that we do. One of our core values, we have seven core values. One of them is the gospel. Uh, we say it just, we are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are squarely and boldly a faith-based, Christian faith-based ministry. And we never want to lose those roots and who we are. Um, the gospel we really see is Jesus came to this earth to represent fully and completely grace and truth. And one of the things that I find often is we as humans have a tendency to kind of put grace and truth on a seesaw and try and balance them. Jesus didn't come to balance grace and truth. Jesus kind of came to the X, Y axis to put it up and to the right. Full truth, full grace at all times. So we at the factory say we want to live out grace and truth to our community uh, completely. So my heart this morning is to encourage us in the gospel. It's really what I'd like to do. Uh, well, I want to start with this question. Um, are you desperate for God? Well, listen, to, listen to the prayer for your teenagers that are headed down to Nashville, and I listen to that prayer, ignite a fire. Do you have a fire for God? Does it burn? Now, when I think about this question, I think about how I used to coach football. This is, why, this is how I think of desperate. Uh, when I coached football, I, I coached football for just over 10 years. I coached uh, midgets, junior high, and high school. And at all levels, I'd start when the season began, I'd, whether I was the offensive line coach, which I was at times, and I'd bring the offensive lineman around me, or whether I was the head coach, which I was at times, and I'd bring the whole team around me, I'd start with this story. To, and this is how I used to view that question of desperate. And am I desperate? I forgot. I kind of view it through this lens. I tell a story. It goes like this. I'll kind of, I won't fully get to the passion that I did on the football field, um, but I, I will, I'll try and kind of play that part a little bit. Um, so I would bring the players around me and I look at them and say, guys, let me tell you a story. It's a true story. Uh, so I'm told that's a true story of a famous basketball coach uh, at a division one level who would set aside for his team, uh, multiple uh, walk-on scholarship opportunities. Players love this. It created an energy around his team and players would come to try out and try to be a part of this and grab that to grab those final scholarship spots that they weren't awarded that they thought they should have had coming out of high school. So they come, one story is told, a player comes into this coach, walks into his office and says, coach, I want to play basketball for you. The coach sits back and says, tell me more. The player sits and tells him about his high school accomplishments. He tells him about his passion for basketball. He tells him what he wants to do in the future with basketball. He gets, he's excited. The coach just kind of sits there with his legs crossed and just listens. He says, you know what? I like it. Why don't you get up and follow me? So the player, the, the coach gets up and walks out of the office and he goes out into the gym area. And so the player's beginning, his, his hands starting to get a little sweaty and he's getting excited. That energy's beginning to flow. Oh my word, it's this coach wants to see what I can do. So he starts envisioning himself draining three-pointers or, or dribbling and showing this coach what kind of skills he has. But the coach doesn't stay in the gym. He actually walks through the gym. This player's beginning to be curious, like, well, this is interesting. He doesn't want to see what I have. 
He walks out into an area in that college had, which was an indoor track. And so he's like, oh, he wants to see my speed, my agility, what I have in my athletic abilities. But the coach doesn't stay in the track. He, he kind of walks through that room and out into an area that was closer to the weight room. So the player's beginning to think, oh, oh, he wants to see my strength. But he doesn't stay. He doesn't really enter the weight room. He kind of walks by it. He opens a door. And as you open a door, you smell the smell of chlorine and the humidity kind of hits you in the face. And the player is beginning to think, oh, what is this coach doing? The coach gets to the edge, much steps like this, and kind of walks right down into the pool. The player stops at the edge of the pool and looks at the coach. What is he doing? The coach turns around and says to the player, I ask you to follow me. Now, the player stands there and looks at the water. He looks at his $150 Nikes. He's like, well, I don't know what what to follow you. He's thinking of his, follow you. Oh, he wants to see if I can submit. So the player begins to walk gingerly down into the pool, gets to where the coach is. As he approaches the coach, the coach grabs the back of his head and throws him under the water. Now, the player is kind of docile at this moment, thinking, this guy is nuts. What is he doing? 10 seconds becomes 20 seconds becomes 30 seconds. And now this player is beginning to think, I'm going to die under here. What is he doing? He realizes he's not letting me up. He's not letting me up. So the player begins to grab at his hands and he begins to fight. And the energy is intensifying. The water is splashing. His feet are kicking up. It's, It's this wild, crazy, chaotic scene. And just as the player begins to kind of go limp a little bit, the coach lets his hand off of his head. And he comes flying up out of the water and says, the player looks at him and says, you are crazy. What are you trying to do? Kill me? The coach pauses, looks back at him and says, when you desire to play basketball, like you desire that air that you were missing, come back and see me. Now, I would tell this to the players, and some of them would sit there and think, oh, this is nice. Others would light a fire in them. Others, it would get them excited, and they'd want to step in. And I'd say, that's, guys, that's, well, that's my heart. I can coach you in a lot of things, but the thing I can't coach you in is how bad you want it. And if you want it, I promise you, you're going to get it. Go after it. So that's why you've always thought about desperation for God. So when I hear the question, are you desperate for God? As a young man growing up, and after I made it, I I had a rough um, journey through high school. I grew up in a Christian home, went to a church, but I came to a place out of high school where I was like, ugh. I actually made an attempt on my life, and things were messed up and turned around and battling depression, significant depression, trying to figure life out. And um, when I finally turned the corner and began to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, this question of desperate would haunt me. I wanted to be desperate for God. I wanted to hunger for him. And when I became a youth pastor, I would preach messages on a regular basis about give God your all in all. I would talk about the spiritual disciplines and about praying and fasting and, and reading your Bible. We taught do scripture memory like you do here, and I pushed and I preached and I, I went at it. Be desperate for God. But over time, I grew tired. Really tired. I wore out. And the thing that disturbed me most. People didn't see this on the outside of me, they, but I saw it on the inside of me. Love for people was not growing. 
It was actually doing the very opposite. So when I heard Jesus' words, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love others as yourself, and then the Apostle Paul, later in Galatians chapter 5, actually states loving people above loving God because the outgrowth of loving God is loving people. So if you really want to tell, do you love God, the greatest thing you can ask is, do I love people? And I had to look at my heart and say, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm pushing hard because I want to hunger and be desperate for God. But something's off. Something's off. But through my journey, I began to answer that desperate question different. I really looked into the gospel of Jesus Christ and realized that the answer to are you desperate for God is not not work up a fervor and work hard and, and this thing that I was asking those football players to do. It's actually a very different answer. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 18, I think Jesus lays this out in a beautiful, beautiful way. Luke chapter 18. If you're not familiar with the Bible, if you grab one there in the seats in front of you or grab your phone, find it there. Luke is near, somewhat near the back of the Bible. You see Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Pass it, you'll run into John. Luke was a doctor. My son's named Luke. Um, bringer of light is what Luke means. Uh, he was meticulous. He was detailed. He just uh, incredible. He told the story of Jesus, told the life of Jesus. Um, Luke chapter 18, he records this story where I think this desperate picture comes out in a beautiful way that has given me a lot of life. What I've learned to answer now when people say, Adam, are you desperate for God? My answer now is yes. But it's not yes because I have this deep, like, fervor. I want, I want him more than I want the air I breathe. I hope that's true of me, but that's not why I answer it anymore. I simply say yes. Do you know why? Because I'm human. I'm human. And because I'm human, I'm naturally desperate. The problem is I don't always know it or pay attention to it. So I've learned to answer this, am I desperate for God? I've learned to pay more attention to, are you in touch with who you are? Stop working harder and craving and fighting and driving, but be in touch with who you are. When you're in touch with who you are, which is desperate, we are desperate. Without God, we're in big trouble. We're desperate. But I forget this at times. I forget this, and I begin to get back into that pattern of work hard, push in, do the disciplines. God wants my all all the time, and I, I really drive at it. And when I'm in that place, what I've found happens is this passage is going to point out beautifully. Jesus tells a story that really is like, whoa. What I've, begins to happen as I begin to realize, whew, I am desperate, and there is a problem. I don't have to do with the problem. I can't fix the problem. So I start looking around me. And instead of realizing how desperate I am, I begin to pay attention to how different I am. I begin to pay attention to what I vote for versus what they vote for, who I vote for versus who they vote for. I begin to pay attention to the disciplines I have versus the disciplines you have. And it begins to become this us versus them, me versus you. And Jesus says we do this because we're working really hard 
to make ourselves righteous versus just acknowledging I'm desperate. And I work really hard at making myself righteous. I have no option but to look at the difference. Because when do I ultimately, when am I ultimately fully righteous? No matter how hard I work, there's still always a little nag in me of I'm not quite there yet. So I begin to look at the people around me. I begin to get on my phone and scroll through social media. And I look, oh, oh my word, they eat what? I don't eat that. They drive what? I don't drive that. They voted for who? I don't vote for them. And I soon start to feel pretty good about myself. So the question really for me has become, am I desperate or am I different? Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 9. Dr. Luke says, Jesus, he also told this parable to some. Now look at who he's teaching. Look at who he's going to talk to. Told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is crucial. The heart of the story, Jesus, is, that's the undercurrent of the story. Jesus looking out at people who, who are trusting themselves that they're enough, that they have all that it takes to be righteous. So he's going to undercut that with this story. Now, again, he also told his parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with what? What does it say? Contempt. Love of God always, always, always is followed with love for people. When I find myself, I'll be really vulnerable. Please don't judge me. Because I walking in, I saw some individuals that drive these kind of vehicles. I don't like big trucks. I just don't. <laughs> now, I'm walking in, some of you are ready to stone me right now because I saw some pretty big trucks out there. <laughs> my oldest son loves big trucks. It's like God brought him into my life to test me. <laughs> he loves them. He buys them and upsells them and big wheels and lots of gas and all. I'm like, I just, why do you drive these things? And I, so at times I found myself driving down the road, getting behind one in my little Volkswagen bug, judging this person because you're not responsible with the economy or, or the, the, the uh, environment. And I go on all these reasons. Why do you need this truck, right? At times I get like that. I have gotten like that. I've gotten a lot better. When I find that spirit in me, when it's there and it's growing, I know there's something off with my love for God. Take it to the bank. I mean, it is, Jesus repeatedly hits on this. So he's going to undercut this current. So here he goes. Look at, matter of fact, let me read in a different translation to you um, this first verse. Different translation says it this way. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves. Complacently pleased. I found that so fascinating. Over their moral performance and looked down their noses on the common people. Complacently pleased. Fascinating. Now, the story goes on. Jesus is going to start the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I'm going to pause here. The Pharisee. If you're around church at all, you've kind of heard this term. If you're new to church, let me introduce you to the Pharisee. The Pharisee would be like your pastor, Chris. Not literally, because he's not a Pharisee, but he's, sorry, Chris, I don't, that didn't come out right. <laughs> They're the religious leaders. They're paid to lead people 
to be kind of a go-between between between God and people, to to help aid the sacrifices within the, the Pharisee, the religious. So you'd expect if you're a pastor, you're a good guy. Right? You got it together. So that's, that's the kind of the in, the, in the culture, they kind of looked up to, wow, Chris is righteous. That's kind of how the thought was. The tax collector. Now, we need to change this a little bit because you could in, in, insert IRS there. And some of you are like, yeah, I hate them. Ah. Right? So you could do that. But, but more in our culture, too. My sister is a CPA. And most of us, when we think of tax people, we think of, yeah, I know a guy, and that guy helps me, or I know a girl. That girl, my sister, helps me at the end of the year get more money back that I really don't want the IRS to have, right? We kind of, that's how we think of, so almost like our tax men today are like heroes, yes, stick it to the man, right? That's how we think of tax people. So we got to kind of insert, you, you need to, what you, we need to do to, to make this story really hit home for us, insert there a pastor which I think that's still kind of maybe in our culture is waning a little, but still in this context here in this room, think pastor, and then insert the worst sin you can imagine, a pedophile, maybe, I don't know, pedophile, a drug dealer, how about um, uh, human trafficking, what is the worst thing that you can imagine, someone who hates big trucks, I don't know, what do you, <laughs> you want to put me in there? So that thing that you're like, ah, Jesus is contrasting those two opposite ends of the pole. So two people walk into church. That's how Jesus sets it up. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Have you ever prayed like that? <laughs> I read it, so I'm like, really? Like, come on, Jesus. Who prays like this? Well, he tells his story. But the reality is, when we are self-righteous, when I'm self-righteous, let's, let's own it. Most of us are at some point in our given days. When I am self-righteous, I am working really hard to make people and help God see that I'm doing pretty good. And a lot of times our prayers begin to be more for me than they are for anything else. Because can you imagine, it's like God's up in heaven. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen to this guy pray. Really? This is amazing. He fasts twice a week. Oh my goodness. Jesus, this guy's amazing. Oh, Holy Spirit, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look at this, look at this. This guy tithes on every penny he gets. Hallelujah, this is amazing. Right? How is this impressing God? It's almost comical. But I think about my own life, how often I've prayed prayers that are either for myself or as a pastor, I've prayed for others. Prayed, prayed because I'm trying to impress others or, or prayed. I remember, remember when I was a, in a, my first role was a youth pastor role. And the senior pastor came to me one time, and he said, uh, hey, we met about once a week, and he said to me, Adam, I noticed something. I noticed that when you pray in public, your prayers are long. Well, yeah, of course they are. I'm praying for the people. He said, I find that interesting. And then he pointed out some things I say in my prayers. And he goes, who are you praying for? Incredible gift that he gave me. And I had to stop and answer that question. Who am I praying for? Who am I trying to impress? 
What am I trying to do for myself? So that's how this guy prays. Now, look at the next guy. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off. So, so, the, so the tax collector is probably back in the corner. Sorry, Edie's back in the corner. So I'm picking on Chris and Edie both here this morning. There she is back there. She's back in the corner. The tax collector's back in the corner. Very different posture. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, this is crucial. It doesn't tell us, Jesus doesn't tell us in a story what the Pharisee is doing with his eyes. But we do know at some capacity they're not down. How do we know that in the text? Those of you who are good Bible students, pay attention to this. How do we know his eyes are not down or closed? What, is, what did he do in his prayer? He saw the tax collector. So if, you, if we would all take a little trip back there to Edie in the back corner and bow our heads, just put our heads down, and then we'd say, what's happening over here? Would you see it? Probably not. So in the text, there's this picture of the one boundary. What's fascinating, I was reading a book um, this, just this past week, this week right now. Um, it's written by an agnostic. Uh, she openly says that right in the book. Um, so she's not a Christ follower at all. And powerful book, very, very interesting. Um, she says this. She's talking about, uh, she comes to this place on humility. And she talks about how do you cultivate humility. Now here comes a person who's not a Christ follower, going to teach about how to cultivate humility. Listen to what she says. We know from various studies that attitudes of superiority prevent us from reacting to others' sadness and even our own. See what she's saying? So when we think we're superior... We have a hard time reacting to your sadness. I have a hard time reacting to your sadness. And I have a hard time even to have empathy and compassion for myself when I think I've got it together. Your vagus nerve won't fire when you see a child starving. Now, vagus nerve, that's, that's, let me pause there. Vagus nerve is kind of the main line that runs, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not, I'm a psychologist, so I'm, I know what I've read. It's the main line, the nerve line that kind of runs out of your brain down into your, right down kind of through everything. It's, it's the line that, it, if you ever, Jesus talks, it says Jesus had compassion for people. The word compassion means literally his stomach was turned inside out. That churning of the stomach, that would be a vagus nerve response. The vagus nerve captures your digestive feelings and it captures the feelings that your body and your organs and all that are having. It carries this line back and forth between the brain. Those who experience trauma, part of the work is to reconnect them to those feelings because they detach from their bodies. There's a separation. So the vagus nerve is a... So anyway, so she talks about the vagus nerve and the importance of the vagus nerve. So your vagus nerve won't fire when you see a child starving if you think you're better than other people. And then she writes about all these illustrations that, they, that they've done in labs and all that over the years. Um, how then to achieve humility? Especially, she says, if you find yourself in a relatively fortunate socioeconomic position. So she points out that our natural disposition, for those of us that are in upper, middle to upper middle class or higher, especially are going to struggle with this. Listen to her first answer. One answer is to practice, then, the simple act of bowing down. This gesture actually activates the vagus nerve. So simply standing and bowing 
activates the vagus nerve. Getting your knees, putting your head to the ground, activates this nerve. So here this man is, the one has his head up, superiority. The other, head down. Now look at his prayer. Verse 13 again. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We sang a song. I wrote what we were singing. I thought, this is cool. This song, um, our sins are many. His mercy is more. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is we get what we don't deserve. Mercy, we're not getting what we really deserve. So he's pleading with God. He knows what he deserves. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14. Would have shocked Remember, who, who's he telling this story to? Remember verse, the, verse 9, who's he telling the story to? Those who thought they were pretty good, right? Verse 14, the way Jesus ends this story would have shocked the daylights out of them, which is why they wanted to kill him, because verse 14 looks like straight blasphemy. Verse 14, I tell you, this man... This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, what's shocking about that? Look at his prayer. What did he pray? Did he say, God, forgive me? Did he say, God, I repent? Did he say, God, I'm committed to change? Did he leave that place saying, I'm going to get rid of all this money that I've stolen from people because that's what tax collectors did, and I'm going to give it back to the poor? God doesn't say he left change. God doesn't say he left committed to change. God doesn't say any of that. He simply has one simple prayer. Have mercy on me. And like that, he's justified. Made righteous. Now, those listening to this would have been like, Jesus. And it should have that same effect on some of us here today, on me. When I read that, I'm like, Then he finishes, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Think of Veggie Tales when I read that. They uh, anyway, from way back, I, my kids growing up through Veggie Tale years, they had a famous. Anyway, I digress. I won't go there. Um, mercy. Have mercy on me. You know, are you desperate or are you different? What is it? We do this all the time. This difference thing, don't we? We live in a day and age right now that is divided, aggressively divided, I would even say. In my role, I get to walk alongside of pastors often. Over the last two years, I've heard more pastors than I care to ever recount say to me, I am ready to quit. I have had enough. The last two years, in, in, in unfortunately, 
The church has not shone bright. It grieves me. We've fought about all kinds of stuff. And it's not just the church. It's our culture. We always want to pick on the church. Well, it's, our church is just, and this is the reality. Here's the thing. Think about this. We're really not that different from the culture in which we live in, which isn't always all bad. I always like to point that out, but that's for another message. We're people. We're human. We're going to reflect the world in which we live. We're going to battle with the very same things that the world around us is battling. The question is, how do we battle it? If we use the same tools they're using, we're going to begin to scorn and look down at people versus finding a softness and rest and life and tenderness and mercy. And we do this. We, we separate. We look at the difference. Oh, I didn't go see that movie. Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear kissed. There was a, there was a homosexual scene in that movie. I won't give them my money. No, that's fine. You're free to do that. I'm not downing anyone who makes that choice. If that's your conviction, live by your conviction. But oftentimes, that conviction is followed with, can you believe they went to see that movie? Oh, my goodness. And they took all four of their kids. What attitude are we saying that in? Voting. Roe v. Wade. Whew. Let's celebrate that decision. But abortion isn't as black and white as what we'd like to make it to be. And there are human beings on the other side of the aisle. And the way I heard some of that talked about, I'm like, at times I'm like, oh. Do we love people or do we love that we're right? Do we love the truth or do we love God and love people? Who we vote for, what separates us. What we drive, I already mentioned that. I've worked really hard on that. You drive a big truck, I promise I love you. What we eat. I've heard so many conversations around, you mean you eat high fructose corn syrup? (laughs) Diets are a big, I mean, it's amazing how we begin to not eat and eat certain things. And I mean, all the way back, Jesus, it was in the Bible. Jesus, the diets were a big deal. Parenting, habits, music, clothes, what we wear, what we don't wear, what we tattoo or don't tattoo on our bodies, what we pierce and what we don't pierce. The list is endless. The list is endless. We have this tendency, it's very, listen, it's human. Because we have a problem, and it's called sin, and we cannot fix it. But we seem to forget this. But here's the thing I want to say. Intuitively, we know there's something wrong with us. Every human being, the atheist, right on through to the God-fearing Christian, knows that intuitively there's something wrong. I'm not as I ought to be. We forget it, how desperate we are. And the minute we forget it, when we know something's wrong, we then have a natural tendency to make it right. And we work hard at making it right. Praise God, work hard. But it's not going to make us right. 
It's going to take us down a dark wormhole. It's going to make us not a lot of fun to live around. That's why I love this passage. Jesus just hits it hard on. Do you know how desperate you are? Can you name it? Can you with quick ease name that which you struggle with? The anger, the lust, the greed. But greed's one we don't talk a lot about. But it's all around us. So if I can see it in everyone else, why can't I see it in me? Well, probably because I'm greedy. Lying, dark thoughts that run through my head. I want to end with one of my favorite passages that really drives this home. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to read this passage and pray. I'm not going to make a lot of comment on it. I'm going to read this passage and pray. Because as I read this, when I ask the question, are you desperate for God? My prayer is that you can just simply say, yes. Not because you're like that basketball player who couldn't breathe, and that coach is saying, when you, when you, not, not because you hunger for God more than you hunger for that air. Not because of that. But simply because you sit here this morning and you have a connection to, I'm not as I ought to be. Even if you've been walking with God for 50 years, you can still say, I'm not as I ought to be. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Titus chapter 3, I want to read this and then pray. Martin Luther, if you're familiar with him, he said if he could rip one page out of the Bible and that's the only thing he could have of the Bible, what would it be? That He was asked that question hundreds of years ago. He said, Titus chapter 3. And I, I understand why. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then verse 4, but, but, let's pause here. You know something that's really helped me in this journey is understanding I have a lot more in common with my atheist. I have a, I have a friend who's an atheist. And I love sitting and having lunch with him. I have a lot more in common with him than I don't have in common. Matter of fact, what I've learned, really the only difference between he and I is Jesus. Our hum the human reality, the human condition, makes us more alike with people than I think sometimes we realize and understand. So anyway, sorry, I perhaps said I wouldn't preach another message here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whew! What good news! I love that. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, preachers will preach that, and often they miss verse 8, which I love. I love, love, love. The saying is trustworthy. What he just said is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
Do you know where good works come from? Look at what Paul says. Where do good works come from? He's telling young Titus, preach this message, which is all about the grace of Jesus Christ. He's lavishly poured out on us the Holy Spirit to make us new, to make us right, to make us justified. Preach it and preach it and preach it. I want you to stress these things so that those who believe will do good works. Our good works flow not from self, but this beauty of seeing what God has done for us. So are you desperate? Are you desperate? My prayer is it's some, it's some way you can answer that. It's some capacity. Yeah, I am. Because I know, I know that without God, I am lost. I need him. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, thank you for that grace and mercy that you have given us. What a gift it is. What an absolute gift. God, I pray for uh, Chris. I pray for his leadership. I pray for the team here at uh, Calvary Monument. I pray that as they lead this church, that they would be bold and courageous. God, that they would tell stories like Jesus told, confronting self-righteous attitudes. God, I pray that they would proclaim clearly the grace of Jesus Christ married with the truth. God, I pray that this church soaks it up. God, I pray for each person sitting here that they would understand at some capacity they're desperate simply because they're human. And God, we ache. We ache as people. I love that one translation, complacently. God, we get complacent. I get complacent. God, forgive me. At times I forget how bad I am because I'm so busy looking at the people around me and how bad they are. And it's easy to do. It's natural, God, but forgive me. Pray we as a people, Christ followers, would just simply start from the position of have mercy on me. God, thank you for that mercy. God, I want to pray specifically for any person in this room right now that this is brand new. Maybe someone came in here this morning invited by a friend or God, and they sit there and they're like, well, how am I made right with God? God, I pray right now for that person that you would speak to their heart. They would hear you. They would sense you. God, we, <laughs> psychologists know it as the vagus nerve. Sometimes I know it as the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, God, I pray that they would feel it deep in their gut. Pray that they'd hear you calling them. God, would they respond with just that simple, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, would they put their trust in you, their faith in you. God, when we do that, we're made right. God, what a gift that is. And we start a relationship, we're born afresh, we're born new, we're reborn. And God, then I pray for the rest of us in this room, God, that have been reborn, have been made new. Boy, May we not get busy trying to work hard. Would we get busy consistently remembering, 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 remembering what Paul talks about there in Titus 3. But 
this is what I was, but, this is what I did, but, when God's grace showed up and poured out his grace through the person of the Holy Spirit to make us justified and right, how do we consistently do the work to come back to where we started so that there's a natural flow towards good works and love of people? And more than anything, my prayer is that Calvary Monument, that I pray for them, that they would be known as a church that loves people. If there's someone hurting in this community, they would know there's a place to go that will love me. That their reputation be one of love and mercy and grace because they hold the truth of who you are. God, thank you for this church. Would you bless them? Would you bless each person here? Strengthen them on their journey and their work in this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.